In Romans chapter 1, where we are going to pick up from verse 16, we left off. Before we, we, we go there, let me encourage you. A couple weeks ago when we started, before the holidays, which I'm blessed that our first service remembered, we went back to our normal services times this week. Good job. Um, we started this book, and I, I have observed that... When people read the Bible, let's say if somebody read the book of Philippians, and they read it, and there's two ways that people could respond to the question. When you read any book, but let's say the book of Philippians, <clears throat> excuse me, the, what is it that you learned from this book would be... Um, a good, good question. What did you learn from the book of Philippians? Well, a lot of people, and in fact, I have observed that most people, when responding to such a question after reading their Bibles, and they would respond something like this. Well, what the Lord taught me through the book of Philippians is um, that... I'm to, he'll give me peace that passes understanding. And, and what they do with <clears throat> their Bible reading is they will personalize it to what it means for them. And though that's not entirely evil, the Bible, including the book of Philippians, as I'm giving you the example, and you pick your book, Ephesians, whatever it is, has the same meaning for you that it does for me and for me that it does for everybody else in this room. Now, there may be ways to apply if you're not born again or different in your, in, or born again, but I would encourage you to stop looking for for. The, the personal subjective meaning of Scripture, the, the Scripture is telling the whole world something, and it means the same thing for everyone. It doesn't change. God is immutable. The Scripture is immutable. And what we need, and the reason I, I encourage you this, and if you remember a couple weeks ago, as I was saying in a moment, I, in the introduction is we need to be entirely, absolutely, seriously submitted to the Bible. When we come to church, we come to hear from God. And upon hearing from God, God's Word, we submit to it, we surrender to it, and we are changed by it. And like I said a couple weeks ago, one of the sayings that people say, don't leave the same way you came in. It's very true. We need to be matured in Christ. The scripture does that. Sanctified, if you will, in John 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by, by your truth, for your word is truth. And we need to stop personalizing as much as we understand that this has an objective meaning, a, an overall meaning for everyone. The scripture is saying exactly what it means to say to everyone. 
I think this is very important because as I meditate on the issues that surround us in Kenya, I was talking to uh, some guys last week from our church, is this, I mean, just for example, you guys can pick uh, other examples, but one of the most pervasive things in this society, in this nation, in this culture is this doctrine of demons called the Word of Faith movement that from that movement comes the prosperity gospel. And, and, and I have thought to myself, what, why aren't we seeing inroads? Now, I have seen some encouragements. Last um, Sunday, I, I had a, a dear lady come up who I know. She owns a, a business uh, uh, this way. And she said she has left uh, Now International, which is a Word of Faith Prosperity Gospel Church. I was very encouraged by that. She shared some of the testimonies before of, of all that she had experienced there, some terrible stuff. And <clears throat> so I'm not saying God has not delivered many people from such things. But if we stopped personalizing Scripture and understood, understood the Scripture is absolute truth for everyone, for all times and all of the world, we understand that the doctrine is immensely important. Doctrine is immensely important for us. Because once we understand the simple doctrines, they're not complicated. And that's good news. Now, that's not to say that we need to be incredibly disciplined to know what doctrine is. Once you unravel it, it's it's simple, but but God doesn't make it easy for us in terms of discipline. We, We must discipline ourselves. But he doesn't make it like, you know... Physics. Everybody's got to understand nuclear science or, you know, these sorts of things. When we understand the Bible is not just for us personally, and it doesn't have subjective meanings, it is for the world, first and foremost for God's people, but it carries absolute truth for everyone. Everyone in Kenya needs to know the doctrine, and that's why... In the Great Commission account in Matthew 28, part of that Great Commission is sound doctrine. It, it, Jesus says that um, teaching everything that I have commanded you. And there's never been a revival <clears throat> in all of the world that did not begin with two things, prayer and God's word being preached. It's never happened. God's word being preached. So when you approach scripture, dear sheep, dearly beloved, understand you must approach it with this is what truth means for everyone. Everyone, not just me personally. Stop personalizing so much because you can confidently speak that truth that you've learned from scriptures to others and it will apply to them as well. Here in verse 16, Paul comes with this incredible um, verse that is very famous. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Um, 
Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, had made a pilgrimage to Rome. He was climbing up these steps in St. John's Cathedral. Um, The idea is if you climb up these steps on your knees, um, all the way up, you will bloody your knees and you will get time out of purgatory if that is indeed where you were going. And as he was bloodying his knees, climbing up these steps to try to get time off of purgatory because of his sins, he could never really make it to heaven, This verse came to mind as he was crawling on his knees. The just shall live by faith. And really, formally birth the Protestant Reformation. And many of you know and have studied that revival. Um, Before we move on, it is always important for me to review, partly because I don't know if, well, there's visitors among us also, it's good for us to review, and forgive me for saying this also, I just don't know if everybody's listening intently all the time. So, you probably are. I just need to think better of you. We, we see this, this observation beginning in, in, in verse 1 and, and going down to this obligation of Paul wanting to get to Rome to bear fruit, and then the affirmation here in verse 16 of the gospel is powerful. Two things in terms of review that is extremely important for us, extremely important for the world, because we're not just personalizing it, is this question that I Maybe it's the top five questions I've received in all the 14 years of, 15 years of full-time ministry, and what is the will of God for my life? Which also is why I gave the introduction, is it's, we are personalizing the will of God too intently, rather than seeing the will of God that is purely objective for everyone. Now, I'm not saying that God does not lead us by His Holy Spirit, Uh, to different vocations, but that is incredibly subjective. That's that's internal. I I cannot observe that through Scripture. It does not say Josh Lawrence and Hezekiah 3.3, go to Kenya and start a church. And Paul mentions, and I want to just review two things before we talk about verse 16. Paul mentions that I meant to come to you, he's talking about going to Rome, that I may bear fruit among you, but he says that I might find a way in the will of God to come to you there in verse 10. Now, Paul is not trying to find a way in the will of God through some subjective thing. Now, it was subjective at the time, but it has been written for us in Scripture In the book of Acts, uh, Paul mentions that God had personally told him, God had spoke to him, that he was going to make it to Rome. So this is now becomes objective. God's word has spoken. It will be eventually canonized, written in the New Testament for us believers to observe. You're going to Rome, Paul. No one's going to stop you. Death can't stop. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so Paul 
is not saying, man, I really want to go to Rome, but I don't know if God's going to let me. I'm trying to find a way in the will of God to see if he'll let me go to Rome. No. Or, or man, I really, I really want to get married to this person. I just, I, I, I hope this is God's will. No, nothing like that. Paul has been told by God he's going, and he is now walking by faith in that word and that promise, and he's like, well, maybe this is the door that the Lord is going to open for me to go. Maybe this is the door. He ends up shipwrecked, you remember, and, and it, I mean, why do you think he was so confident that right after he gets shipwrecked, he's all calm, he's like, yeah, don't worry, guys, God told me I'm going to Rome, and he's also revealed to me, we're going to make it, and then they get on the island of Malta, he's gathering wood, which is a servant. He didn't sit down in a fancy chair as the apostle Paul and say, go get a fire going. He started collecting wood as a servant leader, and he's going to make a fire. And when he gets into this wood pile, a viper or a snake comes out and bites him, and all these people on this island are like, man, this guy must be a murderer. He is certainly a wicked man, a sinner, because not only was he shipwrecked, but now God, or whatever God they were referring to, has sought that he is to be dead because now a snake bites him. And they've seen these kinds of snake bites before. People die. Paul confidently shakes the snake off of his hand and begins with the fire. Why is he so confident? Because God told him he's going to Rome. And he's finding a way in the will of God to get there. This is the lesson for us. Don't trade what you do know for what you don't know. Maybe you don't know your full-time 30-year vocational plan. Maybe you don't know exactly who you're going to marry or how you're it's, you know, the every detail of your children's life. Just know this. God has called you to glorify him where you are today. And he's given you the freedom within the parameters of his will found in his word to choose things. This is very important. I don't know if this is God's will. Well, let me ask you this. What do you want to do? Well, to be honest with you, I, I, I would like to, to marry so-and-so. Okay. Is this person a Christian? Yes. Is this person bearing fruit that would prove they're a Christian, which is very important? Yes, it's like, okay, well, is this person of the opposite sex? Yes. Well, God has given you the freedom to choose. Just understand there is a will within who you get to marry. Or it's like, it's like, I don't know what my vocation is to be. To be honest with you, I really want to be a missionary in northern Sudan. It's like, well, what are you going to do that? I'm going to preach the gospel. I, I'm pretty sure it's a good idea. You know why? Because God said to go preach the gospel to all the world, making disciples of every nation. Guys, we are so focused. And by the way, I do personally believe this is a trick of Satan. As Eve, Paul said to the Corinthians, as Eve was deceived by the simplicity that is in the gospel, I fear that you will be deceived as well. And, and do you remember in the Garden of Eden, 
when Lucifer finally approaches and he's talking to Eve and he says, did God say you can't eat of every tree of the garden? He's like, no, we can't eat nor can we touch the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did God ever say that she can't touch that? She is now focused on something God never said rather than being focused on the revealed word of God, the very thing he did say. I believe it is a trick of the enemy to get us to focus on the things that God never said. Listen, guys, find a way in the will of God on what he has already said. So that is the number one thing I want to review. Number two is he says, I am in debt both to Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and unwise. The wise are supposedly the Jews, and then you got the Greeks and the barbarians, which is the encompassing of the Gentiles. Paul is saying, by saying to the Greeks, he is essentially saying, um, I'm in debt to the high class and to the barbarians, which... It doesn't just mean they're barbarians in sense of wickedness and the Greeks are morally pure. It's what the Greeks called anybody who didn't speak the Greek language. And, and, And guys, the Greek language is probably one of the greatest languages of all time. It is truly an amazing language. So it was a sophisticated, very descriptive, definitive language. And then these barbarians... Um, were these people who couldn't speak properly. They were of the lower class. So Paul's saying, I am in debt to the wise, the Jews. I'm in debt to the Greeks, the upper class. I'm in debt to the barbarians, the lower class. Essentially what he's saying, as I said a couple weeks ago, is he's in debt to the world. And there's a, a couple ways that we can be in debt. Somebody gives us money personally, and we owe them the money back. But the other way which Paul is referring to is that you can receive either resources or money for somebody else and the person that gave it to you for that other person, you're a third party, now you're responsible not to consume it upon yourself but to give to the person who's it's intended for. So, so Paul says, I want to come bear fruit amongst you. And also, I want to receive fruit from you. I want you to use your gifts. Paul recognized, and it's very important that you know this, that it's not just the pastoral staff or the workers of a church. It is the entire body of Christ that gets to build each other up through the different gifts that God has given all of us. And he says, I'm in debt to everyone. And then he follows it up with, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul is telling us exactly what he is in debt to as a third party person receiving the gospel from God, from Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of truth and the personification of wisdom, 
He's receiving this resource, which is the greatest resource of all, the gospel itself, who is God, Jesus Christ, and now he is not just privileged to, to, to take this resource, to take this gospel, but completely obligated to give this. He is a debtor. He is commanded. He is responsible to give this to all of the human race. In 2 Kings chapter 7, you have these four lepers who were right outside of Samaria. And right outside of Samaria, um, the Syrians had encompassed the city, and, the, and, and really they were starving them out. They were cutting off their supply chain, and they were going to all die of starvation there, Samaria being in Israel. And, and, and these four lepers who were already cast out of the city because the lepers could not dwell in the city, these four guys said, listen, if we stay here, we're going to die. If we go into the city, we are going to die. But maybe if we go into the enemy's camp, to the Syrians, maybe they have different customs and different laws. Maybe they will feed us. Maybe we can get some food and live. But if they decide to kill us, we're going to die anyways. So let's step out, not knowing the future, because we ain't got nothing to lose. It, it, it's kind of symbolic of faith in a way. Not that I'm saying they were walking in faith, but nevertheless... We don't know the future. You're supposed to step out uh, uh, understanding God is going to provide. Don't worry about what's going to happen. Don't worry about if God's going to provide for you. Just He is. Consider the, the birds and the, the flowers and all these different things. But, but so these guys are going into the Syrian camp. And when they get there, you guys remember the story? They get there and it is completely empty. And the scripture reveals to us <clears throat> that God had really sent a delusion to them that <laughs> they heard chariots and they heard an army that sounded very powerful and they actually, these Syrians, fled leaving all of their stuff and all of their resources in this camp and these four guys show up and... They have plenty of food, they have gold, they have silver, they have everything to be completely rich now, completely fed, completely provided for. And as they begin hiding the silver and they begin hiding the gold, you know what they start saying to themselves? You know, this isn't right. This isn't right what we're doing. We have our people, an entire nation, an entire uh, a group, a city, these Sumerians, that need to hear this good news. I am afraid the truth of the matter is most 
Christians in free countries around the world just hide all of the gospel resources, not understanding that they need to be shared, that we're in debt to the world. I mean, we came in as lepers. We came in wicked, disease-ridden by sin, and God had completely already destroyed the army before us, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, destroyed Satan and all the works that he has done. We find these wonderful resources of gold and silver and food, the precious beauty of God, the provision of God, and we just start hiding it in ourselves rather than understanding, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I need to go out. How dare I keep this good news to myself? Which person are you? Do you speak about Christ everywhere you go? Listen, guys, I know that most Kenyans are going to tell you, oh, I'm a Christian. Yeah, don't worry. It's like, well, you're actually a Catholic. They don't even say they're Christians. They'd say I'm a Catholic, so... Or you're, you're going down to the Mormon church, or actually, you go to a church... The belief. I'm not saying we need to be cynical or nitpicky, but guys, there are a lot of cults that surround us. There's a lot of bad doctrine. Never, we need to make sure Christ is always being preached from every one of us. Are you like the leper going in and hiding all the resources of the, for yourself? Or are you saying it is not right that we keep this good news to ourselves? And then verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things." Therefore, God has given them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for, the, for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even the, their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, that's the third time now, that God gave them over, to a debased mind and to those Things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whispers, 
backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only to do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, we're not going to go through all of that expositionally, but I wanted you to get a context because really 80% of those scriptures are describing the sin that they're practicing doesn't need a lengthy exposition, but what does need a lengthy exposition is is verse um, 18, really all the way down to verse 27, 28 there. says there in verse 18, for God... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There are really four kinds of wrath that God displays, demonstrates to humanity. You have, uh, number one, you have consequential wrath that through the order of things, the law of God that is demonstrated um, through his nature... It's not that in the Ten Commandments God just chose, well, they can either be liars or not liars. I've decided thou shalt not lie. No, it is his nature not to lie. It is his nature not to murder. Uh, the, the, The law of God in the Old Testament is reflective of who God is. And so there's consequential wrath because there is an order of things when we go out and sin... When we are filled with covetousness, we never have peace because we always want something else that somebody else has. When we're filled with you know, fornication, you, the consequences are illegitimate children and diseases and AIDS. There's consequential wrath. There's also cataclysmic wrath. That is, um, the, the, the wrath of earthquakes and tornadoes and storms and hurricanes. Not that God always causes those, not that he doesn't either, but he definitely allows them. Could he stop them? Yes. And he allows these things to happen. I mean, has anybody seen the news in the United States of the storms that have been happening? Just incredible winter storms killing dozens and dozens and dozens of people. If you look at the images, it looks like a cartoon um, image of the, the movie Frozen, the way these, these houses are frozen up. People are dying. Such snow drifts are, are coming so quickly that they're dying in their vehicles. This is cataclysmic wrath. God allows such things to happen. And by the way, the regions that they're happening in New York and, and Seattle are pretty wicked regions. There's also chronological wrath or the the eschatological wrath. That is the wrath of the end times that many of the prophets have spoken about, that the book of Revelation talks about. And then there is the judgment of abandonment, which is the wrath that God is discussing here. He gave them over. He gave them over. To, to vile passions. He gave them over to, to a debased mind. He gave them over to their 
not wanting to retain God in the knowledge. Three times it says he gave them over. This is the judgment of abandonment. Essentially what happens is so much of humanity for so many different periods of time will, will, will say, we don't want nothing to do with you. Leave us alone. We want to enjoy these vile passions. We don't want to retain you in our knowledge. We don't want to have a foundation of truth. We want to be left alone. And God says, okay, I will abandon you. Terrible judgment. Giving them exactly what they want. So this fourth judgment that I've discussed, the, the judgment of abandonment is what God is talking about here. It's a dangerous thing when God leaves people alone. A dangerous thing. And, and guys, there is, a, there is a lot of theology to get into, and, and I don't want to get into that. But there is debates as to God, does God leave people alone today in the church age where a spirit is poured out on the handmaid and the, uh, everyone alike, as uh, you know, Joel talks about? I believe absolutely God does. Now, I'm not saying it's exactly the same as the Old Testament, but nevertheless, when people continually to reject God, I'm not saying he leaves his sons and daughters alone. He doesn't. But unbelievers that continually reject God, he will leave them alone for periods of time. Today is the day of salvation. It is a very dangerous thing for somebody to say, I will serve you in 10 years, or I'll serve you after high school, or I, I, I know this uh, sin is really against your will, but I'm just going to do it and you'll forgive me over it. No. I believe I was left alone by God for 10 years. When I was 11 years old, the Holy Spirit impressed on me powerfully to surrender my life to him, and I said no. Literally, I'm it's like, no, let me do it after high school. God didn't come to me after high school. He's not going to give in to me. But in his grace, when I was 21, that same impression happened. And what a dangerous thing if I would have said no then as well. Who knows? I don't know. But understand, this is a reality not just for the Old Testament, but for the New Testament because we are in the book of Romans. He gave them over to vile passions. He gave them over to not retain them in their knowledge. He gave them over to a debased mind. And why? Why is he giving them the judgment of abandonment? Which, just on a side note, if you are continually rejecting the will of God for your life in a backslidden state, you are on dangerous ground. Repent over it today. And, and, you know, you may be like, Paul, you were just talking about the gospel. What a refreshing message, the power of the gospel into salvation. And now you go to God's wrath. And by, by the way, one of the most descriptive scriptures concerning God's judgment against homosexuality, he says, why you, you, we were on this high, now you want to bring up his wrath? Because we can never appreciate the good news without understanding the severity of the bad news. We can never appreciate his glory and righteousness and holiness without understanding how wicked and sinful we are. The gospel is not going to be as great unless we recognize from whence God has... Did I just go to King James? 
<laughs> Sorry, from where God has saved us from. Golly. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Why? Because who suppress the truth in unrighteousness? This is incredible. I don't even have time to finish it. We'll get to it next week. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We will not make it any more, and we'll come back to it next week even more. This is an incredible incredible portion of scripture just those few verses for many many reasons if you've ever heard of c.s lewis the great christian author the great apologist and theologian and philosopher his entire foundation of proving the existence of god his premise if you will is a moral objectiveness or a moral consciousness that exists in every single person, even if they're for entirely different races or entirely different times in human history. Very fascinating. I don't want to lose you because this is about preaching this morning and not a lecture, but listen. He's saying that there is a prick in the moral consciousness of a nine-year-old in Africa 300 years ago when he sins against God, as there will be a same prick, a same conviction of consciousness in a nine-year-old in America yesterday. This is an objective. This exists outside of just one individual. This is the whole human race. We're all convicted by sin. Why? Because the God who created us created us in his image. And though they, we are in a fallen state, we still have a moral consciousness of God. And one of the greatest proofs of that is not just in C.S. Lewis's writing. It is in scripture, which is the original thought process of C.S. Lewis. Right here in Romans 1. The, the, the wrath of God is revealed because these people suppress the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So why do they suppress truth? Because they're unrighteous. They're wicked. They choose it over righteousness. This is, by the way, a huge problem for the hyper-Calvinist, which I don't think I'll get into, but they are choosing there is a literal suppressing of truth. Because what may be known of God, knowledge of God that they are wanting not to have, they don't want righteousness, they're suppressing it. Where are they suppressing it? Are they throwing it in the gutter? Are they putting it in the trash can in their homes? No, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness in themselves. Notice it says, because what may be known of God is manifested, where? In them. Inside of them. Inside of them. For God has shown it to them. Where has he shown it to them? Inside of them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Well, this is just, this is incredible. What is he talking about? They can even know, not just is it saying that there's aspects, not complete knowledge cannot be known through a moral consciousness. That's why we need the Bible. But nevertheless, there are things that we can know about God without ever reading the Bible. Why? Because we are a people, we are a species, we are a, 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 a humanity that has been created from the very image of God. And you cannot, and nobody can escape that. Nobody can escape it. And when they suppress God, they're not just taking it out of them and throwing it away somewhere. They can't do that. And we, we have knowledge of God just because we're creating an image, and it gives us some of the knowledge that people can possess about God. It says, even his eternal power, we can understand because of this knowledge that we have intuitively, innately, we know it. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So there's a couple things right there we can know about God. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Why? Because the things that are created that are clearly seen, and yes, it is talking about the world around us, but more specifically, it is talking about what is in us. It's talking about humanity itself. DNA, brain functions. I mean, you, you, do, you, do you guys understand how how intentional you have to be to disregard the order of the human mind and eyes and DNA and body, which Richard Dawkins does and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and all these imbeciles, ignoramuses, they're agnostic, atheists, whatever they are, they can, can see something so orderly and, and, and that's one thing, but also deny the moral consciousness that they have within them, that it is wrong to murder, it is wrong to, to, for Hitler to have genocide, and they, they deny it. They have knowledge within them. Now, I'm, I'm going to come back to this next week. I want to end. This is very important. This is one of the aspects on why the gospel is so powerful. The gospel is so powerful because it's the truth, okay, yes, it's the truth. The gospel is absolute truth. Jesus Christ is the gospel. But, but, but that truth, when we speak it, strikes a chord, if you will, this circle of truth, however deep that they have suppressed it, it is still within them to recognize. And I'm not saying that there's a full conscious recognition of truth. I'm not saying that every time we speak the gospel, everyone's going to get saved. But one of the biggest reasons why the gospel is so powerful 
It's because, ladies and gentlemen, it's the truth, and that truth has been written in their hearts, and in order for them not to be born again, they must suppress it. It's much more powerful than Islam. It's much more powerful than Hinduism. Why are we so scared to preach the gospel? Do you know the registration, what they have to register in order to deny it? They have to deny the very essence of who they are when the Creator speaks to them about His sending of Jesus Christ. Why are we so afraid all the time? Who who else has this power? No one has this power but Christians. No one has this kind of power. And when you speak it, they have to suppress it. I don't care if you're talking to the most intellectual professor in Kenya who happens to be an an atheist. He's still created in God's image and you still need to preach the gospel to him. Do you guys get the point of this? Do you get the, how we can see why the gospel's so powerful? What are we so afraid of? We see a guy in a nice business suit who has millions of shillings because he owns a business. Gospel's still powerful. We see a Muslim completely in his Muslim guard on the way to the mosque to pray to a false god. The truth is still powerful, and he must suppress this truth in unrighteousness. There is no power like the power of the gospel. And this is one of the big reasons why. Because they're creating the image of God. I've been asking myself this question the last couple years. How is it that people have become so estranged from God? There are times when I speak the word and I'm just thinking, man, this, these people don't listen. Golly, we did a Bible study with a bunch of people uh, um, during the Friday on basketball day, and maybe some of them are listening. Did a Bible study, and then right after that, one of the kids comes and steals a phone, right after he's in the Bible study. You just sitting he's like, man, they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And I must, and because guys, I have been um, disoriented at times with how much people will ignore the gospel. <clears throat> and, and I got to remember this. I have to remember how powerful it is. The worship team, come on up. And, and as they do, guys, listen. May we as frail and as weak as those four lepers going into the enemy's camp understand it is not our strength that disperses the enemy, but it is God's power that makes the enemy camp uh, accessible to us. And we need to go out into the world understanding God has already conquered, recognizing how powerful the gospel is because no matter if they're born again or not, God still created them and there is something inside of them screaming out saying this is the truth, and they have to make a huge effort to suppress it. The gospel is powerful. Go preach it. Go speak it. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the, your word. We thank you, Lord, that the scriptures reveal to us exactly what is the reality of humanity, how to react, what's to do, who we are, which is the book of Romans describes humanity so well. Sinners, lepers, being provided for, the great gospel and the good news. And Lord, we understand that every lawyer who's not saved in Kenya and the world, every doctor who's not saved, every mechanic, every person going out there are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And when we preach the gospel, part of its power is that they understand they need a savior because of their unrighteousness. And Lord, may we always be ready to preach that. Always be ready to speak exactly who you are. Give us open doors, we ask. And Lord, as we receive an offering, as the church has been doing for 2,000 years on Sundays, I pray that you would receive it as an act of love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand as the deacons and ushers come forward to receive your offering?